scene from the 1978 motion picture FIST, courtesy United Artists. Here, in 1937 Cleveland, Ohio, union organizer, Johnny Kovac, played by Sylvester Stallone, rallies the members of his union while they are in the midst of a strike that is being violently suppressed by the employer. They're not going to beat us down no more. They're not going to burn us down no more. They're not going to shoot us down no more. Because if they do, we're going to do what Mike did. We're coming at them with everything we got. And I'm saying to consolidate it right now. We got to do any more burying in the graveyard. They better get out their shovels. Because we're through taking punches. You know where to fight taking a punch. Nobody ever want to fight taking a punch. And you see what this says? This ain't a bunch of letters like any other union. It says fist. And that's what we are. Every guy in here, a fist. One fist. One fist. One fist. What are you? What are you? Excerpt from the 1978 song, Blue Collar Man performed by the rock band Styx. Written by Tommy Shaw. Courtesy Universal Music Group. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. My name is Thad Helsley, and I am joined by co-host Ellie, a.k.a. the Norma Ray of the airline industry. Ellie, how are you? I'm good. I am soaking up the summer. Thanks for uh, luring me back inside for an hour or so. Yeah, I'm doing great. How have you been? Well, same thing as summers go. It's been actually uh, a pretty nice one. It's not, has, We haven't crossed the 100 mark, which is awesome. So, because that's when it really gets hot. But So, Ellie, I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, because both I and our larger audience love your updates on 
what's going on in the great state of Alaska. And of course, here we are in July, and you've previously told us that everybody in Anchorage unplugs their TVs and radios so they can play outside as much as possible. So how much outdoor time do you have left? I know your parents live uh, in Maine, and I've actually climbed Mount Washington in nearby New Hampshire twice, once with your dad and uh, several of your siblings, and it was already snowing at elevation in August. So what about you? Yeah. So, I mean, here, like at lower elevation, we definitely have at least the rest of like July, August and September really did like play outside and, you know, shorts and t-shirts or at least with, yeah, without really fear of snow. Last year it snowed at the end of September. We got a pretty good dumping, which was, which was weird. And then it all melted like the next day or two, but we do get those higher snow dustings up at higher elevation and we call them termination dust. And so you'll be... (laughs) You'll be walking around, you know, you look up at the top of the mountains in the morning and you'll see like light dusting of snow and you're like, oh my God, summer's almost over and it, try not to panic, but it just encourages you to soak up the rest of summer while you can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd say about at least two and a half more months that we have. Okay. Well, that's actually, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That was more than I expected. Yeah. So today we take on a subject i think near and dear to your heart american labor unions so i was in high school and college in the 1980s long before you were born and it seemed to me and many others that in that particular political climate labor unions overall began a period of steep decline now they didn't go away and of course, you as a commercial airline pilot are a proud member of a, of a union that remains a very powerful force, both in your industry and American society. But Ellie, do you want to educate our listeners on what a union is and what it does and why they remain an important part of the free market and even our politics? Yeah, totally. And I, I'll open up by saying that you know, the biggest scandal of this is the fact that we have a lot of big companies, their employees are starting these union drives, right? So you're looking at like Amazon, Starbucks, Apple. So this is not right. entirely about like the airlines and their unions. So No, um, no, you just happen to be a member of yeah, uh, yeah. A, an airline. But uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, we'll we'll definitely delve deep into some of these other companies that are some sort of kind of unlikely union busters. But we should start right. from your general experience first so yeah. that, you know, we hear what uh, you think. Everything, everything will come from the airline perspective because that's all <laughs> I know. But unions, unions themselves, they're just this democratic organization of workers, and they'll come together to collectively bargain for wages, hours, and working conditions with their employer. Mm-hmm. This was in, like really important following the Industrial Revolution, and it really boomed during like the World War II increase in manufacturing. And this was really important. You know, a lot of unions will say like, if you enjoy your weekend, thank a union. You know, and if you enjoy having a standard eight-hour workday think a union. I mean, back then you didn't have weekends. You didn't have set maximum hours that you could work per day. You didn't have any sort of benefits or anything like that. So So you're saying that that the things that unions insisted upon found trickled into the larger economy. So we, uh, someone like me, all of us benefit from things that unions originally demanded from employers. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, unions would demand a weekend, right? Mm -hmm. For people, for employees to have off. And now all of a sudden, all the labor, all of your employees would want to go work for a union that had weekends off. And so in the rest of the industry, even if they weren't unionized, all of a sudden they had to start offering weekends off in order to entice those same employees. And so there are a lot of benefits of unions that have come out of that really early post-industrial revolution, World War II era where unions were huge. With the decrease in domestic manufacturing here in the U.S., union membership has really fallen drastically from its peak in the 1950s. And it was about 35 percent back then right depending on the on the numbers that you look at and it's only about 10 yep. percent today overall right that's a big drop you know yeah. 50 it, years it's, yeah. a, it's a huge drop especially considering i know it's a percentage but when you look at the growth in population and the growth in overall global manufacturing you should almost see like an, an increase in that because we just were making more stuff but actually at the same time it's decreasing because so much of our manufacturing has moved overseas in a lot of countries that do our manufacturing now labor unions are illegal so like in china labor unions are illegal well they're making most of our most of our stuff. (laughs) Yes. Ironically, the people's Republic doesn't believe in collective bargaining. The people's Republic (laughs) doesn't really care about the people. Yeah. One term that I like to use and that you'll hear a lot in certain industries, especially mine is this concept of like a safety sensitive job. So anything where if you mess up, it can be like a safety issue, right? Like there are a lot of jobs where if you mess up, you know, you're gonna have to go back and fix it like I don't know about you but like if you make a mistake with editing or something like that you just go back and fix it but it's not like a safety issue like you're not gonna get injured or (laughs) you're not gonna die you're not gonna kill a client so no I don't crash into the ocean and kill 300 people no yeah so with the decreased number of safety sensitive jobs in the U.S. such as manufacturing you've just a decrease in union membership and really I think for these safety sensitive jobs, unions are extremely important. And I mean, in my opinion, any job that could result in your injury or death should absolutely be unionized. So I'm thinking like firefighters or like police officers, also any job where your professional judgment call could result in the death or injury of others, whether it's like your customer or clients or whatever. I mean, those should also be unionized. And in this way, think even of like police officers, healthcare workers, pilots. If I'm in the emergency room and there's a doctor that's like making a split second decision on how I should live or die, like I don't want that decision to be clouded by the fact that like they might lose their job because of a decision that they're going to make. I just want them to make that decision. And same with, you know, police officers and firefighters and stuff. You don't you don't want them second guessing every single decision that they make based on whether or not they're going to lose their job. You just want them to make that right professional judgment call. And so I think that having the union as a safety net for a lot of those professions is extremely important. And and that's really where we see heavy, like heavy unionization. Ironically, we see pretty heavy unionization with nurses, but not with doctors, because doctors have to pay for their malpractice insurance. Well, I was going to say that. I was waiting for to, to interrupt. Yeah, doctors aren't unionized. Nurses are. The other thing is the biggest union, I think, in the country right now are teachers unions collectively. They're not 
safety specific as you were talking about before, but they, and they are, um, yeah, they're huge millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I know a few teachers, you know, who are in unions and I'm always looking to swap union stories with other people who are in my industry. Cause I'm like, tell me how your union works. And, and yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a completely different environment for their union versus like an airline union. And I think it's interesting to note that unions are very popular amongst the public sector. So you look at about 35% of public sector workers are unionized, but only about 6% of private sector workers are unionized. Yeah, why is that? Unions introduce a very sort of bureaucratic clunky process into like worker treatment and benefits. And so I think it just works well in the public sector because it just takes forever to get anything done. You know, like you just introduce sometimes unnecessary levels of like bureaucracy just to like get a raise or change healthcare provider or, you know, healthcare insurance and stuff like that, in in my opinion. So I think it just works better. Whereas in the private sector, everything is just much more streamlined. So people in the private sector, they really strive on that like individualism, you know, and like their individual merits. And so they like to just be able to go straight to their boss and be like, look what I did. I've been working, you know, these extra hours, look at how great I did on this project. Can I have a raise? Whereas when you work for a union, you doesn't matter how great you did, you know, the union has to go on behalf of you and collectively bargain for everyone. So I think in the public sector, it just generally works a little bit better because everybody who works in the public sector is used to like these very democratic systems that take forever to get anything done. So that's, that's my opinion. So I've never been a member of a union myself. I should just probably say that up front, but um, I've been a small business owner, which I am now and, and have been before. I've also been, I almost two decades, I was a member of a Fortune 500 company and we, our company had many, many unions. And so I've experienced clashes with, with unions. So let me just throw out one example and let you respond to it. So I would occasionally go to trade conventions and I would have a booth and I'd be selling whatever I was selling. And a lot of these conventions take place in big cities like New York or or, uh, or Chicago. And I would pay, or my company would pay, thousands of dollars for the privilege of having this little 10 by 10 booth, you know, on this convention floor. And those cities I mentioned are very heavily unionized. And however, I was prohibited from plugging into, I mean, this is just one example, like I would have a computer or a monitor and I could not plug that machine into a standard plug, a plug that like everybody has in their house in, in America, 110 volt plug. I had to pay a union electrician to plug that thing in. And if I refused to do it, I would be expelled from the convention floor. So, and sometimes that would cost me as much as $500 above and beyond what I already paid just to have the booth there. So it just seems, you know, so when I think, when I hear the word union, I think of tactics like that, that seem predatory and unfair. And I 
Although at the same time, I would never criticize an airline pilot like yourself. Obviously, we want these people to be people like yourself to be as highly trained and as highly compensated as humanly possible because we put our lives in your hands. But, you know, I could train a chimpanzee to plug in my computer into the wall. So but you're both union members. So I don't know. How do you resolve issues like that? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting story. And it kind of shows like the extreme side of how unions, how good unions can be at job protection. And so I, in, mm-hmm. you have to remember unions are a business. If they don't have people paying dues into the union, then they don't have a business. And, and I think that's one. Well, that's even more than protection. I mean, you're creating a need that doesn't exist. Right. right. It's not like, okay, here's a job. Do I give it to the union guy or the non-union guy? You know, I don't need this guy to brush my teeth or wipe my ass or wash my <laughs> hands. <laughs> you know, it's somebody is creating that job and, and everybody is in on the scam, right? Yeah. The city of New York is in on the scam. Yeah. And I think that's one interesting thing where, you know, especially like when you look at New York City, I mean, didn't I, I'm pretty sure like the history of most unions, especially in New York City, is tied back to like the the mob, right? Or is it the mafia? Like the it's all kind of tied together. Yes. That that movie that we we open up this episode with a clip from the movie F I S T Fist, which was written by Joe Esterhaus. It's loosely based on the career of Jimmy Hoffa. He was a famous Teamster union organizer. But yeah, they made it a strategic decision in the 30s to align themselves, the union movement did, with the mafia in order to get the quote-unquote muscle they needed because employers, big employers, were apparently hiring professional security forces, basically bully men, to go in and beat up strikers and and things of that nature, and they needed to fight back. Yeah. and So you're right. And so I think unions are, they're always charged with keeping the job of their members, right? Like they're, they're, they're charged with job protection. And so if, if I'm going to pay somebody however many dollars or whatever percentage per month of union dues, then I want them to fight to keep my job. I don't want them to work me out of a job. And I think sometimes it goes to the extremes, like what you were talking about with having to have a union electrician plug something into a standard 110 volt outlet. But at the same time, too, you don't necessarily, you know, there there are protections probably within their contract that prevent any of that labor from being outsourced to like contract companies or foreign companies or or electricians who are not properly trained. And, you know, it's funny, the language was probably written in a way that says something along the lines of like any anything that has to do with electricity in this convention center must be done by a union member or whatever. And so maybe it's it's meant to to keep those convention organizers from bringing in some high school kid who can just plug in everybody's stuff. They don't want that high school kid to then move on and be underpaid to do bigger electrician jobs. But at the same time, it creates a huge hurdle for all the customers like yourself. And and I do know people 
who work in civil engineering and, you know, we kind of talk about union versus non-union labor in various states. So very heavily unionized states where states themselves will require union labor on projects, those projects are going to be extremely more like, like vastly more expensive than they are going to be in a state that doesn't require union labor. So let me ask you, so What's it like being in a union? I mean, I mean, we've got this uh, again. I have this impression just from Hollywood movies and things of that nature. These these meetings where everybody's like, you know, the guy gets up there, the guy or the girl, and they're like, "All right, we're gonna take on the boss," ah! <laughs> and, and everybody starts going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So, I mean, do you have meetings like that? It's, it seems to me like if if the pilots put a call into, I don't know, you know, United Airlines and say, you know what, we really think about a raise right now they're pretty much going to say okay okay sure because <laughs> if you guys went on strike it it would be a shit show the whole thing would shut down immediately right? yeah yeah i will we'll talk about that later airline pilots on strike but okay, i, I think right. as far as like being you know being in a union those you know those scenes that come to mind i i'm sure those types of meetings do exist for people who've been in a union long enough, you know that it's not just sitting down with the boss and like negotiating a higher raise tomorrow or like, you know, a, a pay raise or better health benefits tomorrow. It's like, okay, our people elect people and then those elected people hire lawyers and then those lawyers schedule a meeting date with the company's lawyers two months in the future and then they'll negotiate through like five percent of what they bring to the table and then they'll set another meeting date for two more months in the future and then they'll negotiate another five percent so it's it's actually funny when i'm when i was doing the research for this podcast i was reading an article where they were interviewing starbucks workers about why they were trying to unionize because Starbucks is a company that has really deep pockets and pretty great benefits. And, you know, they're interviewing all these like 18 and 19 year olds who are like, we just really want to sit down at the table with management and negotiate a better life. And it's like, okay, Howard Schultz is not just going to like walk into your Starbucks and be like, Jimmy, what kind of pay raise do you want? You know, like that's, that's not how it works. And I think sometimes like really young people just get a little naive about like how unions work. But as far as like the meetings too, I, if they exist in the airline industry, which I'm sure they do, they just need to like not have them during summer <laughs> because like, I'm not going to go <laughs> during summer. I'm too busy playing outside. Have you ever been to a meeting, a union meeting, or do they just communicate with you by email? I mean, and So much of and it is just regular mail. email and town halls now, you know, like virtual town halls and stuff. Town but, halls. But they, okay, they I mean, it. I have been to like in-person meetings, you know, when you're first hired and stuff. There, there are a lot of in-person opportunities, but with airlines in particular, it's so everybody lives all over the country. I mean, it's impossible to get everybody together. Right. But at some point you, you vote on a new contract yeah right and they communicate with you they said well we did this and this and that like you said they hire lawyers and you you elect your representatives and at some point they come back to you like you know earlier this year we did that episode about the union negotiations for major league baseball mm -hmm. except they're only representing a thousand people <laughs> which is like really really manageable you could put those thousand people in a room if you wanted to there must be a hundred thousand airline pilots out there, right? I mean, there's no way they could ever put you guys together, but 
you all get to you're all in one union, right? There's no competing union. Every airline pilot is in one union and you all vote on something. Correct? Well, we're different per company. So every company has their own union. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that. Okay. Every single company has their own union. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And it's I thought I thought you were all one company like like the United Auto Workers is Every single car company has the United Auto Workers. There's some pretty heavy hitters within the airline industry. So, like, some airlines use Teamsters, which is a pretty common, you know, union for a lot of industries. But then the the big heavy hitter within airlines is the Airline Pilots Association. And that's an association that's like an umbrella association for all of the other carriers that use that union. And so they kind of have, like, the same... like management structure and stuff. But there are a few airlines out there that have their own in-house union. The biggest one is American. They have their own in-house union. Southwest has their own hmm. union. UPS has their own union. But pretty much every everyone else is either the Airline Pilots Association or Teamsters. Nothing else comes to mind. And really, that's a big thing in the U.S. Like most other carriers in the world are not unionized. Uh, A lot of Canadian carriers are as well. But pretty much every other carrier in the world, international carriers, they're not unionized. So, okay, let me ask you this. So the other thing I want to get your thoughts on, the original labor movement began in America, began really during the post-Civil War industrial boom. So people like my grandparents on both sides came here as teenagers, turn of the century, from Eastern Europe fleeing serfdom and peasantry and, you know, all those things that were slavery by another name. And they were promised good factory jobs and they got them sort of i mean like you were saying earlier they had to work six or seven days a week 12 or 14 hour days and often in very unhealthy and dangerously unsafe environments and uh but you know what compared to what they came from at least initially, they were happy to do it. <laughs> it was better than being a serf, you know? Right. And you weren't being raped or killed or whatever. But, you know, now, you know, we there's this disparity that we touched on a little bit before. So so the, the original union movement really focused on, quote, unquote, blue-collar people working, wage-earning jobs in factories, et cetera, et cetera. And now... The unions that we hear about on a daily basis, and we'll, we'll get to Starbucks and Amazon in a second, really are, you know, you've got professional sports teams, you've got artists, like musicians, actors, directors, and I mean, these are the, these are the unions we hear about. And then when somebody goes on strike, like, like Major League Baseball or football or, or all the actors go on strike, man, it just shuts, shuts stuff down, boom. I mean, you can see who's got the po- the power, but whatever happened to the, I mean, I know there are still other unions out there and every once in a while, you know, I drive back past the AT&T store and communication workers of America are holding up steins and going <laughs> down with AT&T. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. T- I don't, you know, and, and then you're in a union that's sort of in the middle. You're not, you know, you're not like a super rich union person. You're not maybe the sanitation worker of America either. Right. But I mean, I don't know. What, why do we have this disparity? And yeah, I think that's something really interesting that I even struggle to comprehend is like 
why certain industries are unionized. I mean, I think one thing you asked me earlier too, and I have to finish this thought, but it ties into my next thought uh-huh. is like being in a union is fantastic because you don't have to go negotiate your own pay and benefits. Like I don't have to think, oh, I need to negotiate a raise to keep up with the cost of living or whatever. Just it's all automatic. Right, you don't have to have that that terribly difficult conversation with your boss. Yeah, it's automatically done for which me. I always have every every year. Like I would have to. Yeah, and so I mean, I don't have to be like, hey, I think I deserve another week of vacation or anything like that. It's just it's all done for me, and everybody's so equal, you know. And I think that's one really nice thing about the airlines is everything's so seniority based that it's like. Everybody who's been there my amount of time is paid the same, you know, no matter how hard your landings are, how smooth your landings are, whether or not you iron your shirt, we're all paid the same. The downside of that is we're all paid the same. And when the union is negotiating on your behalf, it can take a long time to get things done. Like we were kind of talking about that big bureaucratic clunky process, like most airlines right now haven't had a contract since I think like 2018 or 2019. So we're all operating on like, really old pay scales that don't keep up with inflation and the company can't just come through and be like hey 10 percent pay raise you haven't had a contract for three years yeah uh yeah you guys are just like like on a handshake agreement let's just keep like a continuing resolution in congress we're not going to pass a new budget we're just going to say well we're just going to keep the status quo for the next six months until right. we can hammer this right. stuff out but you've been doing it for three yeah, years or two and a half years for over three years. Yeah. And I, you know, every airline's different. Holy moly. So so that's where, that's where the whole union thing can, can be a little bit of like a, a headache because for non-unionized employee groups, a lot of airlines are just going forward and saying like, Hey, here's a raise. Right. But they can't do that for the unionized employee groups, whether it's pilots or flight attendants or maintenance workers, every, those unions have to go, go negotiate. And And it's a long, lengthy process. But back to this whole thing about airline pilots being in the middle ground, it's like watching the whole MLB negotiation happen. It was so interesting to see how those players are, you know, they're still paid vastly differently, right? Like Max Scherzer is paid very much a a much higher rate than like. 45 million versus 750,000. Right. And yeah. yeah. And you know, I mean, 750,000. And yet he's standing in the locker room right next to you. I know. You have the exact same locker. You've got the same, you know, deodorant and, you know, what a jock strap. And it's like, wow, that guy's worth 45 million a year and I'm worth 750. Right. And they're, yeah, they're, they're on the road the same amount of days. They're staying in the same amount of hotels. Yeah. They're wrecking their bodies in the same way. And 750,000 sounds like a lot until you realize they they their whole spring and summer and fall is spent playing baseball and you only can do it for what 5 10 15 maybe years i don't know how long baseball players normally last but it's like the average is less than 3 years actually oh wow yeah G- yeah, I mean, a guy like Max Scherzer is obviously extraordinary. He's like Tom Brady in football or whatever. You know, these guys that have a twenty-year career, but that's not the and average. That's, they are they're the two. And that's where you know I think unions is baseball itself like safety sensitive. I mean, yes and no. Like they're still working their bodies, <laughs> right? Like. Uh, I'm not going to call a baseball I mean, player if some guy tries to break into my yeah, house 
or if my house catches on fire, I better call Max Scherzer. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. But I, He'll come over and take care of that in an instant, man. But they're so, still at the point where, like, they, they can be – I can see how, like, the lower the lower paid players, the ones who are only paid $700,000, $750,000, are at risk of being exploited because they're they're working a lot, they're traveling a lot, and – it's really hard on their bodies and you only have a pretty short playing life and, and then you're, you're done. And so I think it could be easy for like the, the TV companies and stuff to try to exploit those workers to play as many games as possible and things like that. And, and it's hard on their bodies. It's hard on them physically, but I, I still, you know, then when you look at these other, you know, like actors and actresses and, the workers at at and I'm not, I'm a union girl, but sometimes I just, there's a lot I don't understand about how those unions work and the significance of them because they're just, you know, it's not like that anything they're doing is going to like get them injured or exploit them. It's not like even a, a hotel housekeeper who's working midnight shifts and yeah, there, there's a pretty wide disparity. A lot of it I don't quite understand. Well, it's... Uh... You know, it's market-driven forces and obviously things like professional sports and like uh, actors, musicians. And this predates the American labor movement, right? Very, very much star-driven, right? So someone like Babe Ruth, long before there were baseball unions, was making the highest salary of any professional athlete on planet Earth, you know, back in the 20s and 1930s. So... I mean, that's how I guess you can explain a Max Scherzer or why does George Clooney get $30 million to be in a work for six weeks to be in a movie or something like that. But like you, like if you're sitting in a cockpit and you know that the guy or gal sitting next to you is making like 50 or 100 times more than you are doing the exact same fucking job. Wouldn't you like think, well, you know what? I think I'm going to pour some cyanide in that guy's coffee because <laughs> <laughs> that is pissing me off. You know, I don't know. Right. Do you, what do you think? Well, yeah. So funny. I mean, funny stories about similar things like that. Like you, you when you talk about stardom, right? Like you're George Clooney and you're Max Scherzer, you know, and acting in baseball. Right. I mean, there's there is that level of stardom where you always have. Yeah, and incidentally, I just pulled the, out middle aged white right, guys. Right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there is a sea of like people who are who are willing to be exploited just for that small chance of stardom, right? And so that's where you get, I mean, that's that's where you get these kids who, you know, have been playing baseball since they were like four, had a private coach since they were like six, still trying, and like they finally make it to the MLB. Like they want to be like that next top player, right? And, you know, that's why you've got all these actors and actresses like moving out to LA and living in cardboard boxes basically and working three different jobs just, just to try to make it. There's There's that level of stardom. Do you live in a cardboard box to to fly a commercial aircraft? I mean, you did know, you have to live in a live in a dumpster and just say, "I'm gonna, man, I'm gonna fly that plane someday. I'm gonna crash it right into Denali." So- <laughs> you know, I think there's, you know, it's funny you say that. So when you look at like the history of, of airline workers, it's a it's a boom and bust cycle, right? Like the airline industry very heavily follows just the economy in general. So when you have a good economy 
a strong economy, then airlines are doing very well. And then during, you know, recessions and depressions, it, you know, tends to fall pretty hard. And, well, and COVID is a, is a, is an excellent example of what you're saying. Right? right. I mean, that really had a serious impact on travel and so many other things, but travel especially. Well, so one big beef that a lot of airlines have, a lot of airline pilots have is the exploitation of airline pilots because so many people want to be an airline pilot and it's this this role it's this job that is so often sold with like an emotional aspect right people are like oh, i want to dream of being an airline pilot this is my this is my dream yeah. this is what i want to do and um it's a cool job it's a very cool job and people and you have to pay for your flight training either with money or time what if you're in the military you're paying with your time at least 10 years and if you pay on your own i mean it can be upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars more or less to, to get your rating wow. and so Wow. And so it's very difficult just to get to the point where you're qualified to make money flying. And so you also have to have a lot of experience to be an airline pilot. So just to go fly for the regional airline. Unless you're a 9-11 terrorist, right? Right. And then you can <laughs> just go you're... to Cessna school for a week. and then Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's I'm a sorry. great point. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, unless, unless it was on September 11th. So does that drive the price down? You're saying that because it's such a desirable job, like like I always hear people in the radio industry, people want to be a DJ. They want to be on the radio. So so it, it drives the – you think, oh, my God, those guys must make millions of dollars because they're on the radio every damn morning talking about all this stuff. And it's like, no, actually, they make like 25000 bucks a year. And then they've got to like do weddings and stuff like that to make a living right. because everybody would want to be on the radio if they could. Right. And so this is this is the exact problem or like one of the, the issues that airlines are facing is that the regional airlines – so when you fly like – the, the regional smaller carriers like, you know, American Eagle or Delta Connection or United Express, those are all um, regional carriers that are contracting with the major airlines. So the major airlines, they pay well now, but that's because there's a big pilot shortage. They didn't always pay that well. And then the regional airlines historically do not pay very well at all. And in fact, I mean, even just recently, as recently as like 2016, I mean, my first airline job, I made $22,000 a year. And I was flying the same passengers as $20,000 a year $22,000 a year on my first airline job. Oh, in what year is this? 1930? <laughs> <laughs> and okay, now that yeah. Now that's criminal. And you're paying and you're flying the same routes that like, you know, garbage is, men make three times that much. But, but you do it because you love it. And this is your dream and blah, 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 blah. <sighs> right. So, but I know, but your people's lives are in your hands and my garbage man, you know, he's just picking up my, my green bag. But everybody, everybody at the regionals wants to make it to a mainline carrier and the mainline carriers pay a lot of money, and that's where you get like that wide body international flying experience. Okay, so you're like saying it's like the minor leagues in baseball. So the people, minor league, like in double A AA or triple A, they make minimum wage or sub minimum wage, depending on how you calculate it, if you count all the trainings and stuff. Yeah. All for the hope, as soon as they walk in the door of that one of those 30 teams, boom, they're 750. Right. Just as a, you know, but up to that, like you're saying, they're making 
I don't know, six months at minimum wage, what is it? probably less than 20,000. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting because a lot of times the same unions, the same type of union is negotiating for these wages. But the reality is everybody's willing to work at these really low wages because they, they so desperately want to go fly for a mainline carrier and build their experience. And so like one prime example is this one time I landed at an airport, a pretty large international airport, I think it was Houston, and we landed behind a 787, which is like the highest paying of aircraft. And they were taxiing so slow. They took over an hour to taxi to their gate. And we were taxiing what? behind them. This was when I was at a regional carrier. And we, so, so we're taxiing. Um, you can't just like go around no. them and say, God damn it. <laughs> you know, like when you're behind an old lady on the street, it's just like. <laughs> there's, there's no passing lane. And no, you can't do that. Yeah. Okay. So we're taxing behind these taxing so slow. And uh, anyway, so I'm, I just want to get home. Right. And, you know, I'm in my little my little regional jet and I'm, you know, making 22 bucks an hour. And, uh, and and when I say 22 bucks an hour, you can only as an airline pilot, you can't work more than a thousand hours a year. So that's where you make twenty two thousand dollars a year. And um, so oh. I'm in my mind, though, I'm like this poor regional pilot. I'm like, cool, an extra twenty two dollars. Here we go. And uh, my my captain looks over at me when we finally park because we park right next to this huge airplane. And he goes, you know, that captain just made more than you made in the last three days in that one hour of taxi. And like, it put it all into perspective for me. You know, it's like this guy taxied really slow for one hour. And like, I just worked for three days and he made more than me in that one hour of taxi. But that being said, are, are you and the captain making the same amount of money? No. First off, or is there some kind of a make less? Yeah. Captains uh, make more. Uh, okay. So they're, all right. So, but it's all based on like a seniority kind of a scale, right? Yeah. When you get a promotion, you get a raise, et cetera, that kind of thing. Right. Right. So yeah, it's, okay. um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're paid more because they have the ultimate command authority of the aircraft. And so it, it was just, it, it was interesting to put it into perspective. And I was just like this young, you know, wrinkle free kids sitting there like, Hey, you know, an extra 22 bucks. That'll buy me a lot of stuff, you know? And like, it, it, it put it all in. Well, that's your version of, of living in that cardboard box <laughs> in LA trying to get an audition to be on the next, uh, to be an extra on walking dead. Right. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's like, Oh God, now I got to go work at Starbucks. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, I do definitely, I see, I see the, the good sides and the bad sides of unions that, but like I said earlier, I think the best part of unions is, is where you, you know, you have a safety sensitive position and you need to sometimes make judgment calls and you don't you want a safety net of a union there to back you up in the event in the rare event that you might make a wrong call. And so that's where I think it's it's really important for like, you know, police officers and healthcare workers and, you know, pilots to to have a union and whether, you know, they're negotiating higher pay or not, you know, it's um, you know, that's entirely different. But for those types of workers, it's extremely important to have a union. And, you know, is it, you know, we'll get to Amazon and Starbucks, but I don't know that it's that's yeah, a whole well, different let's, world. Let's, let's, let's move on to that. April 1st, 2022.
The recently formed Amazon Labor Union holds a vote among workers at a Staten Island warehouse in New York City. First four Amazon workers at a Staten Island warehouse have voted Friday. Just moments ago, we got the final results to join a union. Uh, again, this is the first time that this has happened on U.S. soil, and it represents Amazon's biggest labor challenge ever. Uh, the outcome, of course, represents a landmark win for organized labor. There was another vote at an Alabama warehouse, which actually did not pass. So anti-union efforts won, but it was a much closer vote than the one that we saw a year ago. So this certainly has major implications. We are currently seeing Amazon shares weaken a little bit still up about four tenths of a percent. We'll bring you updates as we get them. But remember, Scott, that this is not the end of this story. We are likely to see an appeal from Amazon that could take weeks or months um, at this warehouse and potentially others. All right. That's Debose. Appreciate that update. We, we talked about, you know, how the labor movement started and and it was really people who were being exploited in, in many, many ways that we would find completely unacceptable in, you know, 2022, the uh, the working conditions and the hours and six or seven days a week, et cetera, et cetera. And now it just uh, one of the reasons we, we did this episode is because in the news are these actually we keep saying Amazon and Starbucks, Google and Apple computers are also having issues with their, with their workforce, but, uh, which, which is kind of different because <laughs> the majority of their workforce has six figure income, which is not the case with Amazon and Starbucks. But the thing about them is that <laughs> up until this year or last year, those two companies run by very prominent liberal philanthropists and considered great model corporate citizens offering all these benefits. I mean, my God, Starbucks, like I go to a Starbucks almost every day and, you know, they've got this, we're hiring, you know, they get this giant sign, we'll pay for your college, you know, we'll give you vacation time, we'll give you all these benefits and stuff like that. So it's just it's just ironic that these, uh, you know, quote unquote, progressive companies are the ones that are rekindling the union movement, at least from the standpoint of making headlines in the media. So and I know you've been researching this and you've got, you know, a stake in it as a union member yourself. So I'm, I'm sure we'd all love to hear your perspective on these disgruntled assholes. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> these kids think... that, that are going to unionize. <laughs> yeah, right. Like these 18 year olds who think that like Howard yes. is going to like waltz in and be like, I'll have a caramel macchiato. And here you go. A $30 an hour pay rate. <laughs> And here's your check for $50,000. <laughs> I just, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting movement amongst um, like, okay, Starbucks and Amazon are, are completely different. And they are, they are, they're almost, yeah. they're, they're different than Apple. So here are my thoughts on okay. Starbucks. So I think Starbucks, it's like very high turnover, young, mostly very liberal employees. And so they, they feel unappreciated and it's interesting you know in a lot of the research that i found they don't like how the company treated them during the pandemic and after the pandemic well technically we're hmm. still in the pandemic i guess but you know it's interesting how they were like considered an essential business and they're like oh like we we don't get all this stuff for essential business it's like but the okay the karen's needing their oat milk latte is not necessarily essential like you're just you were just in the food industry right it's not that like starbucks lattes are actually like essential to society 
<laughs> no, they're in the same industry sector as like a McDonald's or a Wendy's or yeah. something like that. They're called uh, Quick Food Service, QFC or something like that. Because I used to sell a lot of advertising to Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's. They were all sort of kind of the same thing. And, and the advertising tactics were the same. Coupons, click on this and then go to the store, you know, that kind right. of stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, it's like, there, it's not necessarily a safety sensitive position. Like, you know, no. the worst, like, I'll, okay, I will say I was, I can live without a donut. I can live without a caramel macchiato. I can live without a Big Mac. So. I was in a, I was in a Starbucks in like downtown Denver. And this guy walks in wearing only a bed sheet and like a trash bag full of his stuff. And he like is asking for coffee and they're like, well, we need you to put on a shirt. So he dumps all his stuff out of his trash bag and he finds a shirt and he puts it on. Now, was that me? And there. I, I no. think I was, that was me. <laughs> that, that, I think. I, that's kind of how I dress and I you carry went, my bag. Straight from your toga party to a Starbucks yeah. in Denver. Well, look at me now. Here I am. And, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and he they're like well do you can you pay for coffee and he pulls out like somebody's business card and they're like that's not currency and uh he finds in this trash bag of stuff a five dollar bill and he's like i want he he blurted out this like super complex order and they made it for him and mm. uh but then i guess it wasn't what he wanted so he ended up leaving they had to ask him to leave but it's still at the same point it's like I, that's a starbucks in downtown denver like pretty you know, standard, I think, for like a weird homeless guy to like walk in in a bed sheet. But that's about as extreme, I think, of a threat that like most Starbucks workers have that and like soccer moms who, you know, get oat milk instead of almond milk or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, I, I don't, uh, I think the, the unionization amongst like Starbucks workers is mostly um, just going to create I think it's more for like news and I think it's going to create a lot of headlines but in the end I think a lot of these younger employees are going to realize that they're not going to get much more than they would or maybe not even as much because you know Starbucks can just unilaterally provide all of its employees with like a five percent raise to you know help with inflation or they can just automatically and have. Say like hey, and they've done stuff like that I mean yeah. they, they supported people through COVID I mean I mean, again, they yeah. were great corporate citizens, uh, or they but they say, can afford hey, to be. Right. You you want us to pay for your college? Sure. We'll you know give you scholarships and things like that, tuition assistance to pay for that kind of stuff. But the union members themselves, like they're going to have to go through a union and like negotiate with the company, which takes forever. And so I think um, there. And like I you said, it's a very high turnover business, like all the, the quick service restaurant industry is. So are they even going to stick around? Because like, like also, like you said, all the people at the Starbucks I go to, um, you know, there's a middle aged dude like me who's the manager. And then everybody else is a high school or a college kid. You know, and they're right. all on their way to something else. Like one of the guys I always chatted with just got a job, so I'm never going to see him again. Right? He got a real job. You know, he got his master's degree, and now he's making, you know, $75,000 a year before he was making $11 an hour. So, right. <laughs> I mean, and that's that's the thing is like, start, you know, Starbucks, like they, they provide, they have pretty deep pockets. They already provide more than what's required by like the government, right? You know, I mean, you've got, thanks to unions, you do have things like minimum wage now. And, you know, if you're going to pay a minimum wage as a private sector employer, then, you know, the the 
but minimum wage let's be honest about minimum wage i mean it hasn't been changed for decades and it's right. 725 an hour uh federal right. minimum wage and here in Vir- the the great state of uh commonwealth of virginia um we're a quote unquote right to work state so it's very difficult to have a union in this state and mm-hmm. um the People that make minimum wage make seven twenty-five an hour, which is like fifteen thousand bucks a year. So right. now, in in a in a county like where I live, where the market forces drive wages up, you can make eleven bucks an hour at a Starbucks. But I bet in Bristol, Virginia, population, I don't know, ten thousand, you're probably making seven twenty-five an hour. Right, but I mean, it's those market forces, right? Like if yeah. you've got, yeah. you know, the minimum wage is seven twenty-five. Starbucks is paying eleven dollars an hour. Well, you're going to go work at Starbucks instead of somebody paying minimum wage. And if you're living in Bristol, Virginia, where the cost of living is a lot lower, you know, uh, you're gonna you're gonna go to the highest paying job that supports your quality of life that you are qualified to work. And and that's the thing too is that I you know I struggle to see with like some of these Starbucks you know gigs and like Amazon gigs is you know they're not very ho- highly qualified positions. Um, and from so a skill set standpoint, right? right? From a skill set. <clears throat> standpoint. I mean, you can so, be trained to to be a barista probably in a couple of days. I mean, some of that equipment does look a little complicated, but I'm sure anybody can be taught to do it. Right. And so, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. Is it is it a position that you really want to have that longevity in? Like, do you really want to stay at Starbucks long enough for them to No, unless you're you in management, enough- you're it's not a career move. So um, for another podcast, I interviewed a guy who's now a big shot in a um, in an advocacy and LBG uh, QT uh, rights group. He had been on. He had been a manager, like a divisional manager and and run like 20 Starbucks. And he was on his road to, you know, corporate. Um, And and if you're doing that, that's one thing. That's a career. Right. But that guy that's giving you your caramel macchiato, you know, that guy, that gal, that, you know, 19 year old person, they're probably got, you know, some other career path on their mind than serving coffee. Or even going to Starbucks corporate in Seattle. Right. Well, and even the same as, you know, kind of with Amazon, it's like people who work in the Amazon warehouse probably don't want to work there for forever. And that's a, you know, a harder, more physically taxing job. I mean, I think we've all kind of seen some of those horror stories of like people having to pee in water bottles because their break isn't long enough to like go all the way to the bathroom or whatever. Um but I think so that- this is OK. So now we're switching from Starbucks to Amazon. You're right. They're very two different companies. Now, this is where I'll disagree with you, because we have remember um, Amazon's uh, HQ2 is located uh- here in northern Virginia. Now, it hasn't fully opened yet, but they're they've got regional distribution centers all throughout the mid-Atlantic. So I've known a lot of people that work in warehouses uh, for Amazon and they do consider it. A lifelong career because really? they they pay good and yeah. they have benefits they have vacation they have health care they have a, all the things you you would think of a, a quote-unquote real job they have even though they're just working in a warehouse and i'm like ah, you really just want to be like fulfilling orders like putting my socks in a box and sending it to me i mean but you know what it's a career. And, and, and you know, it's how bad is it than, than a, a million other jobs? You know, how bad is it than being a receptionist or, or, or working on somebody's taxes? 
Right. Know. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, I, I think the the reality is like Amazon can demand more of their warehouse employees and, you know, um, I'd like exploit is a pretty negative term, but like, you know, have them walking, you know, however many 50,000 steps a day or whatever it is, you know, like, you know, filling these orders because people are willing to do it for the amount of money that they're making and for those benefits, because the amount of money and the benefits is pretty equivalent to like a, a white collar job that you would have somewhere else. I mean, most blue collar workers, you know, like in warehouses aren't getting vacation time or anything like that. But, you know, I think Amazon, unless they're in, in a particular, union, right? right yeah. I think Amazon workers in particular, and I say this as someone who works in an industry with the same threats, I think Amazon workers in a warehouse need to be very, uh, like they they almost have to walk this tightrope of, you know, asking for, for more benefits and a higher quality of life, and then uh, not asking for so much that they're just completely replaced by robots. You know, I think it's um, one of those, one of those fine lines because it, you know, warehouse workers you know, can easily be replaced by, you know, robots and machines and stuff. And so the more and you probably ask, will be right. And probably some yeah. point, probably, I yeah. mean, it's, it's happening probably incrementally as well as like um, the delivery guys, you know, uh, they're experimenting with drones doing uh, the deliveries as opposed to a human driving up in a truck. Yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah, you've got these Amazon, you know, warehouse workers that are unionizing and asking for more than what Amazon is already giving them, which Amazon is already giving them more than you can find in the vast majority of workplaces of, among the U.S. for that level of skill set. And, you know, yeah, you, you just have to be careful, I think, as an employee group, you know, asking for more, because at some point Amazon's just going to say, hey, screw it. Like you guys aren't worth keeping around. And then you're, you're, you know, you kill that, that market for forever. Um, you know, but both through so, so it's gotten a lot of press in terms of the fact that people are talking about organizing, but then, you know, there, and I, and I guess there's an entire legal process that was established in federal law a hundred years ago, but there's an opportunity for people to vote, to decide whether they want to be in the union. And so far only one place in America has voted yes, and this place happens to be in the state of Alabama, which seems like an unlikely place. Um, and the the place in you know some other places that have taken the vote, like Staten Island, you know Staten Island in New York City have voted an exit. Although many many reports of intimidation and things from management against uh, the you know scaring people to vote no, intimidating yeah. people to vote no against the union. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing is, you know, like it's, um, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, union busting, right? Like, you know, the Amazon and, you know, Starbucks and Apple and Google, like they're not going out and, you know, beating striking workers with clubs and stuff like that. They're anymore. not, but they're doing um, <laughs> other things. They're firing people that are organizing. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, you're right. No, they're not beating them up. The guys, you know, are not, uh, you know, people aren't showing up dead mysteriously or what have you, or the car doesn't blow up, but still, I mean, yeah. firing people, intimidating people. I mean, so demoting people like are, are they union busting? I mean, yeah, I think they are. But, you know, it's not illegal. And, you know, employers like they can legally discourage employees from joining a union. They're allowed to like make you attend a meeting that say like, here are the, 
you know, downsides of joining a union. Here's why we don't want you to join a union. They're allowed to put up flyers. They're allowed to say they're allowed to discourage employees from joining a union. And, you know, I. But where do you draw the line? I mean, if you're starting to fire people for for having an equally legal meeting to talk about um, the benefits of joining the union. Might be legal right. to say, okay, these are the benefits of not being in the union. Well, here's the benefits of being in the union. We're going to have a meeting, and you guys, by law, have to let us do this on our break or on our lunch hour. Right. And that's the thing. And now that, that guy is... gets fired, and everybody sees that the guy that ran that meeting just got fired because, right. quote unquote, he was not a good worker. Right. Had well, nothing to do with his that... union affiliation. It was just he just was a bad worker. Yeah. And it, it is, <laughs> yeah, it, it is illegal for them to prevent employees from joining a union, right? Like you can't prevent somebody from joining a union. You, they can't no, they can hold them. a vote. They yeah. can't have violence, you know, but, but in the same way, yeah, you can't, you know, you can discourage them. And so I, I think you're right. It's like when everybody's sitting around like, oh, shoot, well, the last guy who tried to organize for a union just got fired. And I don't want to get fired from this job that offers good health care and benefits. I, you know, I can I can see why people are, you know, then nervous to vote no and, you know, why they say that there's coercion and stuff. Um, but I think there's also probably a pretty good percentage of workers who, acknowledge that there's you know like that their their pay and their benefits are very good compared to what they would get in another job at another location um and yeah so okay let's let's shift from these wage earning jobs to the millionaires at apple computer and google okay people who have uh, six-figure incomes, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, and they want to unionize. So they're almost now. Now they're in like baseball player territory. Right. <laughs> it's like, and and um, I haven't been to Google headquarters, uh, but I know a lot of people that have. I mean, it's just you know, it's just amazing. It's like some kind of a. Shangri-La utopia, you know, all the free stuff that you get, the cappuccino machines and all the other goodies. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to, you know, what it was like to work there. And yet they're like, okay, well, what else do you guys want? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I would love a cappuccino machine at work, right? Yeah. (laughs) um, And, but the, you know, I think, so I think the key here to remember is because the, these, you know, some of these jobs are ones that I, I also don't quite understand um, the, the purpose behind unionization. Um, but I think it's important to remember that unions are a business, right? Like they, you know, they're also making money off of this. And, and they well, technically they're they're not pro not for profit corporations, aren't they? They're sort of like well, a political campaign or or yeah, uh, but, or a, an association, you know, like but in order to exist, in order to exist, you know, then they have to have dues paying members. And they, so revenue, they need revenue. Yeah, right. So with yeah. with the decrease in, you know, manufacturing jobs and safety sensitive jobs, I mean, I think you, you know, they have to shift their attention to other sectors. And and I think the gr- the growing trend is that, you know, a lot of employees feel underappreciated 
in in a lot of industries, you know, whether it's, you know, the food service or the tech industry or, you know, anything like with customer service, especially like during the pandemic when, you know, a lot of customers were just like downright awful and mean to the employees of multiple, you know, multiple industries. I think, you know, employees just generally feel undervalued. And then there's this, you know, organization that can come in and say like, hey, we can help fill that void. You know, we can help solve this problem of you feeling undervalued. And um, I, I'm not entirely sure how that's working at Google and Apple. Um, one interesting note about like the tech industry is so many of those employee employee groups that are actually looking to unionize are contracted through Apple and Google. They're not actual like Apple and Google employees. And so when you look at like these union busting tactics, like if you have a contract company, you know, that's, that unionizes, um, what, you know, this, this growing trend is then for like Apple just to not renew their contract with that company. And, you know, now all of a sudden they, they don't have a job. So it, it gets a little tricky too. There's these huge gray areas with, you know, this whole, you know, contract industry now, where it's like, very few people actually work for Apple, very few people actually work for Google, so many of their, you know, services are done through these contracted companies. Um, and I there are 1099 employees, like, like my employees are, I don't, I don't have any W, I'm not a W2 um, employee of my own company. So (laughs) yeah, because it's, it's expensive, right? Like it's it is. You have to, have to pay everybody social employees. security and workman's <laughs> comp and all this other stuff. And what about health care? What about a pension? Ah, Right, exactly. Because of all those things that are now required of employees, you know, that you, know, you can thank a union for. <laughs> so I, you know, it, there's so many different kinds of unions. There's a huge gray area too. When So when somebody says like, oh, I'm pro-union or I'm anti-union or whatever, it's like, there's a huge gray area in there. You know, I think it, you know, being able to make a split second, you know, professional judgment call and knowing that you're not going to lose your job, um, you know, with a union is is vastly different than, you know, wanting, you know, uh, more than your three hundred or four hundred thousand dollar a year job that offers free food and childcare at Google or Apple. Um, so that there's, yeah, I forgot the childcare huge... thing. You're right. Yeah, free childcare. Wow, that's big. That's big stuff. I, I think that's how it. I think they do that. Yeah, I think, I think they do whole... too. And, and you know, that was one of my. Um, you know, my daughter is your age, so when she was a little kid, uh, that was, I think, our primary one of our primary expenses it was almost a thousand dollars a month. Child, yeah, daycare. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's, there's just, there's a lot. There, there are a lot of like moving pieces, and I, I think what it ultimately comes down to is so many of these employee groups feel feel undervalued. And whether the union is actually going to help them feel valued or not is to be determined. But, you know, I think a lot of companies are trying to step in and, you know, increase wages and benefits, partially because they have to, you know, like you have to get workers. I mean, there's a labor shortage right now. So um, airlines in particular, I know. Yeah, market forces like employers are going to pay more because they have to pay more just to find labor. you know, it's it pe- employees are felt, you know, feel undervalued. But is it 
you know, is it the employer's job to make you whole in life? I don't know. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you just need to go to work and get a paycheck, right? And then go do the things you want to do. So, um, so we, we're going to have to wrap this up. We've been going oh, yeah. quite a while here, but we didn't really discuss what the what the f is going on with all of these flights being canceled you know and i know the management's blaming it on the unions unions are blaming it on the management i mean yeah the, and then the we're all blaming it on the faa canceled. yeah okay and it's the faa's yeah. fault okay <laughs> right cuz you know like you've got this huge air traffic controller shortage and so when you don't have enough air oh right so that's part of it so if you yeah. don't have a controller you can't fly a plane you can't right. get it off the ground Okay, so right. I thought it was cruise. I thought there weren't it enough is. cruise. Oh, it's every it's everywhere though. I mean, it's, it's like everything. there's you know you don't have enough pilots, you don't have enough flight attendants, you don't. It's like whack a mole, right? Like it's if you don't have you know if you don't have enough like mechanics to fix your airplane, then your airplane's not going to go anywhere. If you don't have enough gate agents to board your airplane, then you're not going to go anywhere. If you don't have enough pilots to work you know to fly the airplane, you're not going to go anywhere. And so there's there's so many employee groups that are that are really struggling just to 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 find personnel right now um and and is it because like like i know some people who were like flight attendants career-long flight attendants and you know when covid first started they say oh okay you know they were like laid off or furloughed or something like that because there were so much fewer flights and then they just decided to take early retirement so now yeah. they can't go back, I guess. But no. I mean, is that what happened? Did everybody just leave? And now, because now, if the airlines are going, come back, come back, everybody, please, are are they well, all just doing something else? All those people? Yeah, because yeah, because in something particularly like when I look at pilots and flight attendants, everything is based on seniority. So you, when you leave, you can't just come back at your same old pay rate. You know, you're you're you have to go to the bottom of the seniority list, which means well, go, you know, can't they waive that rule? I mean, if I was in management, it's like, like fuck that rule, fuck it. Look, we're, we're rewriting <laughs> no. the whole collective bargaining agreement. You get to come back, and and we'll give you a raise. We we want but you to do you work. know? Do you know how long it takes to <laughs> I don't work know. on a collective bargaining agreement? Well, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, been years, over three yeah. and a half years. So well, that's yeah, you, know, you mentioned that, right? Yeah. You know, you're you're looking at years until you'd fix this problem. You right. Know, they, they they wrote the Constitution in, in four months and you guys can't get a, a, a labor agreement in three and a half years. So, no. <laughs> I mean, I, and at, at my previous airline, I think it was like eight or nine years to get a new contract, which is why in 2016 Holy I was making $22,000 a year. Yeah. And so, so, you know, it's super interesting. So for airlines in particular, you know, we are governed by the Railway Labor Act which was designed in the 1920s to protect trade and commerce. And um, so, so, you know, they realized with like the, the railway workers, they were starting to unionize and it was such an important part of moving people and goods across the country that, you know, Congress was like, all right, we can't, this can't shut down, you know, Um, it's becoming too important. And so when the airlines started filling some of that, you know, void as well, then the airlines were sort of grandfathered into the Railway Labor Act. And so um, the airlines, so so it's interesting, you know, now people are like, oh, pilots are going to go on strike. Eh, it's such a lengthy process for us to go on strike because you have to be released by the National um, 
uh, I think it's like by the National Mediation Board or the National Labor Relations Board. And you so it's a it's such a long process just to go on strike because, you know, airlines are part of this like commerce and trade bubble that really are that's protected by um, by the Railway Labor Act. And so uh, like the last strike was in 2010. Spirit Airlines uh, went on strike for a few days in the summer of 2010. And I mean, that's back when they were very small. They only had like 450 pilots back then. Now they have over 3000. So with the consolidation of the major airlines, you know, you only have just like three or four major airlines. I really don't see, um, you know, Congress authorizing us to like or like the government authorizing us to like cancel one third or one fourth of, you know, all flights in the country just because, you know, pilots want like a higher wage. Um, So like for a lot of summer travelers, you know, they'll drive to the airport and you see like pilots who are picketing, Um, you know, they are like just picketing. uh, It's like a public show of like dissatisfaction, basically, to like, you're saying today this is happening. No, there, there's been a lot of airline pilot and flight attendant picketing throughout the last like few months, especially like, okay, not an official strike, just a symbolic show of solidarity. Right. Right. And so it's not a, it's not a strike. And so sometimes people are driving to the airport. You see like all these, you know, like employees with picket signs outside and people are like, Oh my God, the pilots are on strike. My flight's going to be canceled. It's like, no, no, no. We, there's so much that has to happen for us to for us to go on strike like that. I, I probably will never see a strike in my lifetime just because you have to be. I just don't see it happening because, like I said, that would cancel like so many flights. You you expect to be right now from your perspective, you expect to be an airline pilot the rest of your career, your professional career. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of hard to leave hard hard gig to give up so it's a um, pretty cool gig unless you're in a blizzard or something but yeah, yeah that would be that's scary a sm- small percentage <laughs> of the time it is I, but all it takes <laughs> is one like you said all it takes is one screw up right so yeah but you got the i mean that's why you got the union so yeah that's a helpful part of it but did, did we cover all the major topics? I hope we, I think we did yeah. cover all the major topics, so I don't even know how okay. to wrap this thing up. Uh, here's what I'll ask you. Have any advice for those people at Amazon and Starbucks and Apple? I'd say like you could really... walk into one of their meetings and Sylvester Stallone is up there going, we're going to pay me. Yeah. <laughs> and you walk in and say, oh, here's Ellie. She's going to talk to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd probably say, I'd probably say, hey, just think long and hard about the this this union vote and and the contract that you're going to negotiate because if you negotiate these pay rates now in 2022 it could be 2026 2027 2028 before you get another pay raise so negotiate it well now and acknowledge that in the future you just might not have the same benefits as everybody else because the company has to go through the union in order to to get a pay raise. It's, it's not all, it's not as rosy as you might think it is. So you're, you're sounding not so bullish. Ah, it's, I don't know. Like I, I, I am bullish for unions in certain industries. I'm just not entirely sure these industries need unions. I, I, but I don't, I, part of it, 
maybe I just don't understand it enough. I don't know. I'd have to really sit down probably with somebody who's super pro union for those specific industries and understand why my because you never worked in a warehouse or made cappuccino all day. So yeah, on your, yeah standing like, on your feet all day on your feet <laughs> rather than a cushy right. chair and, and you know, <laughs> getting right. to listen to your favorite tunes, sipping a margarita. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Let's go to yeah. Seattle. yeah i don't i just don't think these i think a lot of these people maybe they just don't see some of the downsides of of unions and but maybe maybe they could inform me and educate me on the upsides of of what a union can offer them so yeah i'd say that and encourage everybody all our listeners to enjoy their weekend and uh while you're enjoying your weekend (laughs) thank a union because that's, that's why we all have weekends. That's right. That's why well, we all have weekends good point. Now. That's right, everybody. Thank the unions for weekends. Resting our case on this episode, folks. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at ScandalSheetPod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheets. Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.